the beginning was the word. 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 Word, I'm gonna say the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Hey, thanks for joining us on another show. We've been busy and on the road, in fact, down in Tucson as National Poetry Month rolls along. We've got an exciting program for you. Coming up, we'll take a haiku hike in Tucson with Kathleen Erickson from the Downtown Tucson Partnership. A shock of green grows pushing through the cracked sidewalk. Monsoon graffiti. (laughs) And then it's off to the University of Arizona Poetry Center and a walking tour with Tyler Meyer, the executive director. There's somewhere on the order of four or five million poems in this space. Plus, we'll also talk to a writer who holds workshops at a small cafe outside the city. We write for timed periods and then we read, so we like to keep the groups not bigger than 12. But first, we start off at Bentley's, a popular stop along Speedway Boulevard in Tucson across from the University of Arizona. Ellen Malamed joins me to talk about narrative medicine and how to teach it. Well, I've always had an interest in the arts, and I haven't really been trained in science, but I thought that medicine was just a combination of both the arts and the sciences, and when I heard about narrative medicine as an elective at Columbia University, I decided that I wanted to learn more about it, and um, I took it from there, and I started a, a class initially at a small college in Buffalo, New York, when I left New York City. And they were open to my teaching this to their physical therapists in their PhD program. And then I expanded on it, and I expanded on the, the initial, what I thought was the initial response to narrative medicine, which was to look at the literary end of it. And I, I realized that many people learn um, differently, not just through literature, but through the various art forms. So whether it's music or movement, theater, I felt like there was a real need to utilize the art forms to create empathy and compassion between patients and practitioners and caregivers. I'm just thinking, you know, as the sirens rolled by us here now, as we're outside a busy coffee shop uh, here in Tucson at Bentley's, and, you know, I I would doubt that uh, the paramedic uh, who's driving has has had much in the way of literary arts education. What can they learn from literature? One of the questions I ask my class is, do you think that empathy and compassionate care can be learned? And we talk about that in some families, empathy is not part of the relationships between the family members. And then some of these people go into medicine where empathy is so important, how can they learn that? I teach the skills that are pertinent to artists of all kinds and to doctors. And what the students find is that the skills are similar. I'm curious specifically if you at all focus on poetry, mm. and do you teach poetry to doctors, doctors-to-be, I Doc- should say. Right. So what I do try in my honors class, for instance, when I have these students full-time, pre-med, pre-health sciences, I will read a poem at the beginning of many classes and we will unpack that piece. 
Um, and these poems, I mean, they're, they're ubiquitous. They're all over about people writing about their own medical experience through the eyes of a patient, a caregiver. There are websites galore. And so when you're participating in this unpacking exercise with poetry specifically, what types of things are those students learning that they could apply then to their medical practice eventually? Poetry, as I tell my students, does not have a wasted word. So that means the listening skills that doctors need for their patients and caregivers need to be sharpened. And when we listen to poetry, we listen in a particular way. For some students, they can hear it right away. If I read a poem twice, other students will pick up what the nuances that they missed, how they will somehow turn the volume up on that, and then we'll talk about the sensations, the feelings, the responses that then can be transferred. The more that students read about medical experiences, the more they can then use those experiences in their own practice. Right, and I, you know, I'm fond of saying that reading poetry, consuming poetry, if you will, I like to think of it as kind of a consumption metaphor because you do take it in, you know, you do swallow it, you do digest it, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that it really builds critical thinking skills, which has got to be incredibly important <laughs> for in a, a doctor who wants to be on the cutting edge of cancer research, for instance, and, and, and solve a very complex problem. Well, uh, one, one of the uh, thoughts that come up with my first year medical students is, you know, what kind of practice do they want to have and what kind of specialty? And we know that primary care is paid less than anesthesiology or radiology. So these students who all have the same loans to repay seem to move towards the specialties that will pay them more, understandably. But primary care, I remind them, is the beginning of the medical journey for people. And when I worked in a hospital in New York, patients often complained that had their primary care physician had the skills of observation, of close listening, of close reading, they might not have taken that journey in, towards a hospital. So the primary care physician is so vital in, in deciphering and diagnosing and that comes from the kind of skills that artists have to have. That was Ellen Malamed, an instructor in both the College of Medicine and the U of A Honors College in Tucson. And now it's time for a haiku hike with Kathleen Erickson from the Downtown Tucson Partnership. You might remember we talked to Tucson Poet Laureate T.C. Tolbert in a previous episode of Word, and T.C. came up with a great idea along with the U of A Poetry Center and Downtown Tucson Partnership to hold a haiku writing contest. That project culminated in a very exciting display, and I had a chance to catch up with Kathleen Erickson, who is the president of the Downtown Tucson Partnership, and take a tour and read a little bit on the way. I close my ojos. Dreams of tacos and monsoons, creosote kisses. It's sweet and very playful, and sometimes I think folks don't imagine that poetry can be that way, and particularly not haiku. For a lot of people, haiku has a very um, sort of serious mentality floating over it for some reason. Um, but I feel like this one really captures something kind of comical. It's different than a lot of haiku that I see. <laughs> it is, and I think that 
the theme this year of life in the city has lent itself to having this competition really be so reflective of authentically Tucson thoughts. Right. And one of those thoughts, maybe, you know, a whimsical sense of the city and having a prompt like that, I think, lends itself to, you know, not being very narrow and and opens itself to that type of diversity that you're trying to court, right? I agree. Mm -hmm. Now, what street is this out here? Stone Avenue. Stone Avenue, okay. Now, this park this is the library street. here? Yeah. yeah. This park used to be a homeless encampment, and there was over 100 people living in the park. Um, it was Tucson's own version of Skid Row. And now it's, it's been transformed into a vibrant public plaza. Another program DTP created was called DTP Connects. And within three months, we connected 84 homeless individuals with homes decreasing the homeless rate downtown by 96%. That's a heck of a feat. Um, and how were you able to achieve that? Uh, it was very complicated. We put a table out and a big sign that said, need a home, <laughs> and partnered with Old Pueblo Community Services, a community outreach specialist. Now we drive the, the route downtown um, uh, an area and we, we look for homeless individuals in a golf cart. Uh, we have a big sign banner on it that says DTP Connects, and we connect people with housing every single day. This planter here, you'll see that we work with uh, desert survivors, and all the plants are grown from seed. They're drought-tolerant plants, um, and we maintain all the planters with uh, three different groups of developmentally disabled individuals. And this is in the next block. Uh, this is a poem by Eric Carr. Could you read this one for us? Sure. A shock of green grows, pushing through the cracked sidewalk. Monsoon graffiti. <laughs> it's one. It's really wonderful because we all often think of graffiti in a bad light. A lot of people think of it as, you know, simply an, another form of art. Uh, sometimes people do not think of poetry as art, but I, I tend to think that's the case. What does that image, monsoon graffiti, do for you personally? Wow. <laughs> I think of the weeds coming up in the cracks, right? Because we're, we're always out here weeding, blowing leaves, you know? So yeah, that, that rain is giving way to the thing we're trying to get rid of, really. Right, and maybe in this case, it is more of that artistic sense because this is in a lovely planter. So perhaps the green graffiti uh, is something that touches people's souls or, or something deeper. Yeah, you are very deep. <laughs> it helps to be a poet, so. Oh, I didn't know you were a poet. I'm sorry. No, no I'm worries. sorry. Thank it's you. It's fine, yeah. These are the types of things that we like to do on discoveries like this. Um, you know, I learn a lot, and hopefully other folks learn a lot, too. So, yeah. But haiku is, is actually my favorite form of poetry. Is it? I've been writing it for many years and just have been lucky to meet so many people. When we did our podcast for National Haiku Writing Month, I had no idea the level of writing and the level of commitment to haiku in this state. And for some reason, maybe it was just my own bias, having previously come from Asia, that I really did not expect to see this level in Arizona, and it really speaks to the diversity of the state. Yeah, I agree. I'm very impressed with the response and the quality of work that's come out. Wow, it was, it was so hard. TC told us it was just so difficult. There could have been hundreds to pick from, so... There's one more right up here. Sure. 
This one is by a poet named Kevin Orduno, and a very familiar tree leads off this particular poem. Can you read this one for us as well? Sure. Palo Verde dance, a lively Tucson tango to the streetcar's hum. You get everything in that one, you know, the interplay, of course, between nature and a city. Sometimes, you know, people describe cities as concrete jungles for reasons, but um, we have poetry coming up through the cracks of the concrete here, right? Yes, yes. You know what, Tom, the way that you're reading or listening to each one of these and reading them and really putting thought into it and thinking about what the meaning is behind it is just so deep and... Um, it is introspective. It is uh, it is enjoyable, and it's somehow expanding too. It's it's refreshing to see your take on this, and I hope everyone that comes downtown and sees these poems that they have the similar experience. It's really it's heartwarming. It's moving, and you know what I would also say is that interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, that's just my you know quick reaction, back of the envelope calculation, if you will. But for others maybe they have a deeper connection to Palo Verde, for instance. Maybe they had one, you know, in the yard of their house when they grew up, and it means something even deeper to them. So that's what I love about poetry, is that sometimes, sure, it can sort of hit you with a a quick realization, but other times, you know, maybe you see something completely different, or you don't see what someone else sees in poetry. And isn't that what a city is about? Right. It's all individual, right? Yeah. and, And ultimately that turns into sort of a collective, right? So a city is a both a collective thing and an individual thing. And I think that these poems really represent that. And now it's off to the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Tyler Meyer is the executive director. I began with a question of curiosity about this postmodern building on the campus of U of A. We're really fortunate to have this space. It's a remarkable space for us. Um, And the history of the Poetry Center is more closely aligned with sort of small adobe cottages and the sort of classic Tucson style. Um, So to have a space like this in an aspirational building really has made a lot of different things possible. Well, if we could walk around a little bit, you know, there's obviously a very noticeable uh, display when you first walk in the doors here. And uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, the reception area, of course, with the library specialist to greet folks. But then over on to the right uh, staircase leading upstairs and a wall of black and white photography entitled The Wall of Poets. And The Wall of Poets features uh, a range of photos that document poets on their visit to Southern Arizona and to Tucson to do readings. So all of these people have been here. Right, Uh yeah, and it's still a practice that we keep today. And so uh, the images that we have, uh, we we are taking pictures of poets when they come do their readings at the Poetry Center. And we estimate we've had somewhere more than a thousand poets who have visited since the beginning beginning of the Poetry Center in 1960, a real way to sort of track the 20th century of American poetry uh, that Tucson is kind of a, a, a kind of crossroads that it all comes through. And so we're excited about all of these visits from poets. This collection in particular uh, documents poets before the sort of advent of cell phones. And so we have images that are celebrating 
poets at a time before we took pictures of ourselves every day. Right. Uh, and I'm curious then if you could just maybe name a couple of poets that folks might know. Here. Yeah, well, this is a poet who's coming back next year, but this is a younger Sandra Cisneros uh, with the Machaca doll with her. Um, and we're excited that Sandra will be visiting the Poetry Center next year as our fall poet in residence. Uh, Alison Deming is underneath her, one of the directors of the Poetry Center, a wonderful poet, uh, faculty member here at the University of Arizona. This is John Ashbery, studying some rocks at what we think is the Desert Museum, <laughs> um, who passed away recently. Next to Ashbery is Billy Collins, uh, above Billy Collins. Our former poet laureate of the former, United States. That's right. Um, Denise Levertov, above, above Billy Collins. And next to Denise is uh, Jack Gilbert, uh, who hovers over Galway Canal, uh, with Mae Swenson above them all, looking at a scrapbook. That's fascinating. Um, There's a range as we go up. Mm -hmm. And this collection is part of a deeper collection of uh, photo archives um, from Laverne Harrell-Clark, one of the first uh, directors of the Poetry Center. Um, And when Laverne passed away, we inherited her photo collection and digitized the best thousand of those. And so that collection exists. We're also documenting the poet's visits now with images as we go. Because you have this sort of national repute, it's not necessarily all about the volume per se, but the quality. Uh, well, what goes into your decision making to, to choose what you're going to house here? We subscribe to about 250 literary journals. So we have one of the, the best collections of literary journals that I know of anywhere. Right. Um, and 1,200 books gives us a chance of, of acquiring a good chunk of poetry that's being published in a particular year, but it's by no means all of it. Sure. And so um, so we're working with presses that we think are important to be collecting. Uh, we're working uh, regionally with class, uh, presses that work in our area, but then also uh, national publications that we think are important to have in this collection. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real sense of fidelity to um, the range of possibility that poetry represents. Sure. Uh, and wanting to create a kind of collection that would serve anyone's interest wherever it may go. Let's talk about some of those interests yeah. as we walk around here. Sure. You have the typical stacks that I would imagine the scene in just about any library. And so there's uh, somewhere on the order of about 40,000 books, plus or minus, that are on the open shelves here. Uh, we're open access, uh, and this is a, a key part of how we imagine our library work, wanting these books to be available and browsable by anyone who could come in during our open public hours at the library. Um, There's about 80,000 total items in the collection, and so in addition to the books that are here, there's materials we keep in our archives room, including chapbooks and some other special collections, as well as some back issues of journals. And do you ever find yourself as you, you know, come through the the library looking at the spines, for instance, and something just catches you that you had no idea was there? All the time. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, I like to think of it this way, there's um, say uh, 50,000 total books in the collection um, and on average a poetry book has maybe 60 to 80 poems they're somewhere on the order of 4 or 5 million poems in this space mm-hmm. um, and they're all within these four walls and you could read every one of them or touch each one if you wanted to and that's an exceedingly rare thing to be around right. so I'm often surprised by things that we find here um, our library staff and with our docents have worked on a project they call the Random Poem 
generator. And so uh, sometimes seeing this many books can be overwhelming. You're not sure what you want to look at. Right. And it's a way to direct you towards one single random poem. Uh, and sometimes you're surprised by what you find. Right. And so, so. if I'm, uh, you know, perhaps a, a young student and I know nothing about Walt Whitman, but somebody sure. mentioned the name, you yeah. should check out Walt Whitman. I can go and then go into this finder and, and get a poem authored well, by Whitman. If you know you want to find Whitman, I would send you straight to Whitman. Okay. Uh, but if you don't it, know what you want. Maybe nature. Yeah. Very broad topic, right? Or, or even just nothing. Uh-huh. I want to read a poem, but I don't even know what I want to find. Right. So there's a lot of poems uh, here, a lot of poets that would be recognizable. Um, and there are many here that um, are not. Uh, and they might be poets who uh, have had a quieter uh, experience in their professional life as poets. And we're also equally excited to be collecting their work and documenting that work uh, as a part of the legacy of what poetry has been in the 20th century. And so I see, you know, just off the top of my head, numerous authors that I, I recognize. Uh, uh-huh. Andrew Marvel, for instance. Sure. Um, Marlowe. Um, Cynthia McDonald. You know, just the stacks go on and on and on. Do you ever just pull one out, you know, during your day and read it? Let's go pull one out. Okay. Yeah. yeah let's, let's find, find something. Here. Here, I don't know who this is. Okay. So this is... Um, a book called Ascending Red Cedar Moon, uh, and it's written by a poet named Duane Neatum, uh, and it was published by Harper and Rowe, so, uh, and it was the 3,819th book in a collection. And so you put all of that information into the uh, opening title page so folks get an idea of when it arrived here, or where, where it's standing is. That's in the right. Collection. Yeah, that's How about, right. How uh, about just thumb through there and pick one out? Okay, so this is called An Elegy for Vernon Watkins. He came to our pinecone city of rain to help us find the way to praise white blossoms, nightmares, and the sea. And by making the wave's breath our own, show us how to live with violence and the rose. Then, as if no longer caring to outrhyme death, he left us like a hawk falling from a vermilion sky, turning away the light, abandoning the known. And you just, by complete happenstance, touched on a very familiar form of poetry, which is the elegy, right? Yes, that's right. And I think just about anybody could relate to that. Of course, they might not know who Vernon Watkins is, and but, you know, doing a little bit of research, they could discover that. Do you find that most people, when they're coming to this library, know what it is they want, and that's the purpose of their being here? Or do you find that a lot of people do what we just did, walk down the stacks and pick one out? It's a range of both. We often uh, will have people who know exactly what they want to find. Perhaps they're even researchers that are here for a short period of time working on, say, an area of 20th century poetry or poetics that they want to do some work in. But we also have people come in and say, uh, I have to read a poem at my child's graduation. Can you help me? So they have a select event, right? I never thought of that. Or they say, um, we're having a large um, meal at our house, and I'd like to read a poem to the group. Or maybe, sadly, a funeral. Or a funeral. And this last poem that she read would fit for that, perhaps. That's right, exactly. So um, so we also have those kinds of interactions with people as well. Uh, we have a lot of class visits. We have a lot of field trip students. And so we're often inviting them to explore the Poetry Center in different ways. Um, often building in activities that get them out into the stacks. Right. Exploring the materials that are here. That's Tyler Meyer, Executive Director of the University of Arizona Poetry Center. While I was there, I also caught up with a poet, Will Stanier. 
Will is continuing his undergraduate pursuits in poetry into the master's level. I started by asking him what interests him about poetry and whether it was something that developed from a young age. I mean, I think like most people, um, when it came to it, I was underread in poetry and uh, <clears throat> and certainly behind the curve of you know any serious reader of poetry. I, I really didn't read a lot of poetry, um, maybe until like the last years of uh, my college and my undergrad. Um, but then once I got hooked, I kind of got hooked pretty deep and started. What was it for you? Was it a particular poem or just language experimentation in general? Yeah, it was a it was a particular poet for sure. It was a particular group of poets. Um, and but yeah, I kind of just started looking closer at language and how one word you know trips or relates to another. Mm-hmm. And what was that group of poets that you were interested in? I think the first poet I started reading uh, closely was a poet, Dean Young, um, who just made me laugh. And yeah, sense of humor is probably. And it could be something that simple, right? It could be a tactile uh, thing. It could be uh, an emotion. Oh, definitely. Right? To, yeah, to read a poem and find yourself laughing is probably one of the best responses you could have. I think, you know, the practical world would ask, what is the importance? You know, they often get to that question, so what, in research, right? What is the value of poetry? I ask that question many times to, to yeah. guests. Um, what do you think the value of studying uh, writing poetry, performing poetry is? Yeah, well, I, I think one of the, the the strongest acts of poetry is to even uh, uh, throw it back onto the reader and question the term value, you know, um, and reevaluate your values. Uh, because poetry, you know, exists in this space that uh, is changing, ephemeral, hard to define, um, makes people uncomfortable, um, is really always on the margins, you know? I think if poetry was in the spotlight, it would uh, um, not be doing what poetry does best. And yet here we are in a place that spotlights poetry, right? right. Yeah, which is the uh, extraordinary exception of the Poetry Center, you know? Um, yeah, as a poet coming here, um, I kind of had to do a double take because I was suddenly in a place that was, yeah, concentrating on um, and art in a way that I had never seen before. So, yeah, uh, definitely thankful to have the space. Obviously, you know, like, people come in here and uh, get to dip into poetry, whether you're studying it currently or if you're just looking for a cool place to work. Are you from Arizona originally? I'm not. Uh-huh. No, where, I, where, where do you hail from? I uh, came here from Athens, Georgia. Uh-huh. Are there particular genres of poetry that you like? Uh, you know, are you partial to, say, haiku or formulaic poems or free verse that's a hard question um that's a hard question i've been i've been um i've been studying some some of the wackier uh sound poetry um dipping out of uh logical conversation into more uh yeah illogical stringing together of weirdo grammar that's where I am at the could, moment. Could you give me a, an example and a name or two of a poet who practices that type of poetry? Yeah. Um, last night before bed, I was reading uh, this poet Lynn Hyginian, and uh, Clark Coolidge is another poet. He's also an improvisational jazz drummer, and that comes out in his work a lot. Yeah, those are two poets I've been looking toward lately. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Uh That's poet and student Will Stanier. 
who is enrolled in the University of Arizona's Master of Fine Arts Poetry program. So what's the state of poetry outside the academic confines, if you will? I'm not sure we have a definitive answer for that. But the question led me to Savano, a posh neighborhood in Tucson, one where you might hear late-night short-court tennis. Carol Teal is a writing instructor who hosts workshops for her creative writing group called Courting the Muse at Savano Coffeehouse. In order to protect the anonymity of the writers, we decided to catch up after one of her sessions on a Monday evening. I began by asking her how she got interested in poetry and where it's taken her in life. I started as a teenager writing poetry and and then moved into songwriting, and I've been a songwriter for, uh, I don't know, what's that, 40 years? A long time, anyway. (laughs) So I'm happy to say uh, that I still enjoy songwriting, but wanted to expand into other areas and just take a look at, you know, what else would I be able to write besides poetry and songs, and uh, found this method and just found it uh, a wonderful, wonderful way to, to learn some new skills. Back in February, when I was focusing solely on haiku for National Haiku Writing Month, I found so many people that picked up that particular form of poetry as a child. It was one of the first forms, for instance, that they were introduced. Maybe, you know, they they had a family member that introduced them, but most often in school, and I talked to some teachers as well who taught that form to elementary school kids. You mentioned, uh, you know, getting into poetry as early as a teenager. What was it about poetry that interested you as a form of art or a form of writing? I think, you know, when you're a teenager, you're just looking for some means of self-expression. And that was one that, that was acceptable, encouraged. You could publish it in the local paper and get a little bit of attention from that. Uh, also, there was a boy who wrote poetry. I was quite interested in him. You know, so all those things conspired to... to and uh, once I tried it, I thought uh, it came fairly easily. And so you felt like kind of had a bit of a knack for it. Or, I don't know, it just... It was... Um, just a nice way to express myself and um, get some of those angst feelings out as a teenager as well. Did that at all, that that early experience with poetry, did that inform your songwriting? Because obviously there are lyrical qualities to some poetry. Yes, for sure. I've, I've always been, uh, I mean, I've written some free-form poetry and songs as well, but but I've always been, you know, grown up in the folk uh, tradition, uh, so been influenced by, um, you know, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, all those songwriters, and uh, earlier Pete Seeger and all those people who um, uh, just have a way of express yourself, have a way to accompany yourself on an instrument, guitar, music. It was, it was all very popular in my teen years, right? So um, everybody played guitar. So <laughs> it was a way to, to have a community of, of, of like-minded friends as well. So um, I think that, yeah, the poetry definitely informed songwriting. Um, I've, but I guess growing up in that folk tradition, I was well steeped in the tradition of uh, and form of songwriting that rhymed, songwriting that probably had a singable chorus uh, that you could sing along with, that sort of stuff in the folk genre, Bob Dylan, all those people that came before me and um, uh, loved learning that tradition and trying to expand my, you know, express myself in some way following those great footsteps. <laughs> right, and I, you know, I think of artists, as you mentioned, uh, Bob Dylan, certainly uh, Joni Mitchell, um, Joan Baez, 
Patti Smith, Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen, for instance, John Prine, Arlo Guthrie. Uh, were all those folks influences as well? Yeah, yeah, at different points in my, you know, youth and college and so on. You, you come to know other people as you, as you uh, grow, as you learn. Um, I moved to Canada and before I really knew who Leonard Cohen was, although I knew the song Suzanne from early on. But, you know, you don't always become aware of the artist till later on and, and get to know some of their other work. And now, uh, you know, he's one of my favorites, of course, but... Right, and I, I, I sort of, you know, feel like in, in many ways they're poets first, not that they aren't amazing musicians as well. Do you, do you feel like that as well? Yeah, sometimes. I, I mean, like people like Joni Mitchell always blew everybody out of the water with, with, you know, unusual form and not being constrained by those old traditions, although I'm sure she came from that uh, at some point. Uh, but but taking it to another level, you know, and and letting you know that, you know, you didn't have to stay within the confines of the structure of the folk songs of the past. About how many people are have been coming to these on a regular basis? Do you try to keep the, the groups small? I mean, you're meeting in a cafe, so there's obviously going to be limited space. It's not an academic setting like a big lecture hall or classroom, for instance. We write for timed periods and then we read. So we like to keep the groups not bigger than 12. Um, usually they're around six to eight or somewhere in there, maybe 10. Uh, that way everybody has the chance to read uh, several times during the night and be heard and share their, their work with others and get some feedback about it. That's Carol Teal, writing instructor of the group Courting the Muse. You can find out more about that group at meetup.com. And that'll do it for this episode of Word during National Poetry Month. We'll be back later on in April to give you a little bit more of what's been happening in the poetry scene. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us on Word. You can always send us an email at tmaxidon at kjzz.org. Thanks for listening. Word. Word. Word, I'm going to say the word. 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 Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.